0: Well, we can uh, turn back to the passage we read there, Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 16. As I'm sure we all know, um, Paul's letters are divided normally into two halves. The halves may not be equal in length, but they are... um, the two halves are normally there, and the, the first half is concerned with uh, what we should believe, and then the second part is concerned with what we, how we should behave, and and that is um, what happens here in chapter four. The practical, sorry, the doctrinal section is over and the practical section begins. And uh, we can see that um, Paul says there in verse 1 that they are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which of course um, raises the question as to what is the calling with which they have been called. I mean, Paul has um, already prayed about this because see, we're told in uh, in chapter one, and there, um, down at verse um, sixteen, that he wants uh, to have the hearts, eyes, your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So the the calling is connected to their ultimate destination, and that is to to live, to exist, in the new heavens and new earth. And as we think about that, I mean, one thought that must come into our minds is, well, what will life there be like? And Um, what suggestions will go through our minds, thinking about that. What would life there be like? And we could say, well, it would be uh, sinless. And that's true, but I don't think that's what Paul's got in mind. Or we could say it's also going to be a place of discovery. Uh, And that's true, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind either. I think what he has in mind is unity, harmony. And of course, he he mentions that in the start of this letter as well, because um, when he talks about um, what God's plan is there in verse 10 of chapter 1, he's got a plan for the fullness of time to bring, to unite all things in him. (laughs) So therefore, the calling uh, that God has in mind is a call to unity. A call to unity in everything. Not just in a sense of we'll get along better than we may now with other people, but it's um, the eternal world, as far as heaven is concerned, It's all about unity and peace and harmony and everything connected to that. But how are those who are going there going to live now? I mean, that is the question. And already in this letter, Paul has been talking about Uh, the big barrier to unity that existed at the time he wrote the letter which of course was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles and how in the church that barrier should not be seen and by extension we can say that in the church no barrier should be seen that if there is one um, Group that illustrates to the world what heaven is going to be like, it is the Christian Church. And of course, the minute we think of that, we have to realize that we have completely failed. Because if there's one group around in the world today that indicates a lack of unity, it's the Christian Church. And uh, the, the, the lack of unity can be can be revealed in many ways, and Paul here was concerned about unity in the church in Ephesus, how they were going to function together in their community and I think it's part of the main theme of the remaining chapters in in Ephesians, but it's certainly the focus here, verses 1 to 16, and I just want us to think about four things that arise from this section. And in verses 1 to 3, we have requirement of unity, and in verses 4 to 6, we have reasons for unity, and in verses 7 to 13, there's resources for unity, and in verses 14 to 16, there's realizing unity. So I just want us to think a bit about each one of them. A lot could be said about a lot of them, but um, a lot could be said about all of them, but just a bit about each one of them. Now, Paul himself is in a very uh, unusual location as he says this. He points out he's a prisoner for the Lord and we should ask why he mentions that because it's not the first time he's mentioned it. He starts chapter 3 with the same kind of um, statement about himself where he says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus and He repeats that here again in the verse 1 of chapter 4. He's a prisoner for the Lord, and he doesn't regard his circumstances as a barrier to him fulfilling his calling. If there was a kind of position to be in in which um, hindrances could be imagined, well, it would be confined in some place, some imprisonment, wouldn't it? That would be the one place on earth where somebody can do nothing. I mean, what can a prisoner really do? But in the case of God's kingdom, a prisoner can do a lot. And even the fact that Paul wrote this letter from prison tells us he could do a lot. And it wasn't the only letter he wrote from prison. We know there were other letters in the New Testament that he composed in prison. And there's, he refers to letters that we don't have that he actually wrote when he was in prison. Like the letter he wrote to the church in Laodicea, which, which we don't have. But he refers to it because he tells people in another another place, in Colossae, that they are to read the church, the letter that he sent to the church in in, um, the other place, in Laodicea. So Paul didn't regard his location as a reason for him not experiencing a sense of unity. I mean, his vision was of a divinely created entity that was radically different from anything else in the world. And it didn't matter where you were. It didn't matter who you were. This unity could be illustrated, lived out, enjoyed, an anticipation of heaven itself. And I suppose we have to ask ourselves, do we in the 21st century have Paul's sense of what could be realized (coughs) even while living in a sinful environment? Now, in order for... um, unity to be achieved. There has to be a consistency, doesn't there? And and we can see the consistency in the illustration that Paul uses there in verse 1. They are to walk in it. And I mean it's it's a very graphic illustration. They are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Which, I mean walking, uh, whatever else it is, is not standing still, is it? Walking implies activity, action, but it's not just physical walking that he's got in mind here. He, he tells us the kind of uh, outlook that should mark these people and in order for this unity to be achieved and he mentions them there in verse 2, four features that are essential for this. Uh, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And if these four features are not present, it's impossible to want unity. And that's what Paul says. He says, if we want to be eager As he says there in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, this eagerness comes out of these four features that he's mentioned in verse 2 of humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. Sometimes it's um, useful when we get a list of things And if we want to understand what they are, just to think of their opposites. And if we take these four uh, features of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, what are the opposites? Well, humility, the opposite is pride. And the opposite of gentleness is roughness. And the opposite of uh, perseverance or patience is just giving up after a short time. And the opposite of being in love is to be antagonistic and opposing. And um, we can see that the, these things that Paul is advocating, humility and gentleness and long-suffering patience and being with Mm one another, another love, well, they're all very decidable. But, I mean, what's it like to walk in life where nobody recognizes who you are? I mean, that's what every Christian is called to do. I mean, who, who are we? Well, from the Point of view of God's word, we're the heirs of everything. I mean, we're we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And if we walked down High Street and even if he wore a placard saying, We are heirs of everything, nobody would recognize us. But it must take a degree of humility to go day after day after day after day not being recognized. And there's going to be circumstances in life where gentleness would not be the expected um, reaction. But in them, those circumstances we are to be gentle whatever it is because we're to walk in it always gentle and we're to be long suffering it's easy to be long suffering for a day but then that's That is not long-suffering, is it? I mean, walking in a long-suffering manner and bearing with one another in love. It's not just bearing with one another. In some ways, that is just that can happen. But we're not to bear, it's not just bearing with one another, but it's bearing with one another in love. There has to be this affection that no the implication of bearing something implies it's going to be a bit abrasive. But we have to bear with one another in love. And if we live that way, Paul says, we'll be eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It doesn't say to us that we're to make the unity. No Christian is ever called to make the unity, they're actually called to maintain the unity. God has brought about the unity. Whenever a person is converted, they're brought into the church. At that moment, they're united to God and they're united to one another. And they can never be detached from God or from each other. That unity is achieved by God and it's a is task of all these people who are so united to him that they just maintain that. And that they live day by day as they walk in this manner. They just do it determined to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and that whatever else they do in life, that they do nothing to disturb this unity. That's what Paul says is their calling. And that's where we are if we are walking according to Paul's requirements here, and we're all tied together, it's like having a big rope round us, or a big band round us. And the big band that ties us all together is the bond of peace. I'm sure, sure Paul may have had physical bonds around him when he said this. Because he was imprisoned in Rome. And elsewhere he calls himself an ambassador in chains. And he wouldn't get very far physically with his walk. Because the things that bound him would stop him walking wherever he wanted. But in the spiritual life, because they are bound together with peace. Reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, as he describes in chapter 3. There's a horizontal um, piece and there's a vertical piece, and both of them together. That's the requirement of unity. Is there a price for being converted? And I think the demand is to live in unity with other Christians and not just the ones who are interested in our same hobbies or may share the same outlook on different things in life, but to walk in harmony and peace. With everyone else that the wise God has brought into the church that we have contact with. So that's the requirement for unity. It's the unity of the Spirit, of course. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not a man-made unity. It's God's unity. That's the requirement. And when somebody gives requirements, it's usually quite useful to ask for reasons. And Paul gives us seven reasons here in verses four to six why unity is inevitable. And he just points out they are, and we're all familiar with them. I don't want to say too much about them, but. I just run through them there in verses uh, 4 to 6. I mean, they're all connected to the Trinity. I mean, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are mentioned there in verses 4 to 6. The Spirit's mentioned in verse 4, and the Lord Jesus in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. And the implication is obvious. If, I mean, what marks the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? It's unity. I mean, it's obvious, but I think it's important to say it. I mean, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have never had a disagreement. They've existed eternally. There's never been one um, blip in the entire unity that they've enjoyed. I mean, that's that's extraordinary, isn't it? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have constant unity and harmony. But anyway, Paul gives us seven reasons in addition to that one as to why we are united. Not why we should be united, but why we are united if we are Christian. And the first one is one body. There's, as Paul points out, there's only one body. Part of it might be in Scotland, and part of it might be in Australia, and part of it might be anywhere else. But there's only one body. There's not a hundred different bodies. There's not even two bodies. It's one body. Whatever they are, (laughs) that's astonishing, isn't it? think of the Christian church around the world today our brothers and sisters most of them we've never met and we're never going to meet them in this life but there they are all the different colours around the world different levels of intelligence different levels of achievement in life background, circumstances, a whole range of things, but there's only one body. And it's this body that is walking, isn't it? This enormous body that is kind of walking through time. And therefore, we are to walk together. It's extraordinary. And Paul is trying to get these readers to grasp the wonder of it all. And in all of them, there's one spirit. The Holy Spirit. There's not a Christian in the world today in whom the Holy Spirit does not dwell. How many of them are there? There's millions and millions of them. And none of them has part of the Spirit. Each of them has the Spirit. And therefore there's a reason for unity. It's a marvellous unity. A third reason is that there's one hope. This hope here, as we mentioned earlier, is to do with the future, the inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, the glory that's ahead. And they're all going to share in it. There's not going to be any Christian who's going to be left outside of this. In the eternal world to come, and we don't have very much idea about what life is going to be like in it, but in that world to come, every Christian is going to be there. No one's going to be left out. And we all know that. Paul is wanting them to grasp it The the reality of the union, the unity that exists, one Lord, that's Jesus, there's only one head of the church, and there's there's no many heads, if you want to put it that way, there's only one head, one Lord, one sovereign. We confess, as the early church did, that Jesus is Lord. And when they said that, they were stating everything about themselves. There's not a different Lord of any other section of the church. Just one Lord. And there's one faith. Now, sadly today, there's... um, a whole range of doctrinal variations which wouldn't have existed in the apostles' time because they would just have come along and said, that's right and that's wrong. Today we can't do that. So this particular reason is um, affected by the fact that we don't have apostolic authority now. But the idea is obvious. There's a faith delivered to the saints. And that is a sign of unity. And of course, we do know there are certain core doctrines that if a person denies, they're not Christians. But uh, when Paul wrote this letter, there wasn't a variety of beliefs. There was a set of beliefs that everyone would have accepted. But it was a sign of unity. And of course same goes for baptism. Today there's different ideas about baptism. And at the moment all we need to say is that whichever one was practiced in the first uh, century, it pointed to unity. Because nobody else was baptized in that, that name. And then there's one Heavenly Father. We're all children, of, even the church is the children of God. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, we're equal members of the family. As our, our catechism tells us, that when we become the children of God, all of us have got a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. There's, there's no uh, Christian who's got a bigger right to all these privileges than any other Christian. They're all belonging to them. And that's just a reality. And it has, it is striking, I think, that every time Paul talks about the Father, he feels compelled to say something about him. He doesn't just, as it were, um, mention the Father and put in a full stop, but he he goes on to say something about the Father and he does that again here because he points out that the Father is over all and through all and in all. And I think he's saying to us, this is how you should think about the Heavenly Father. He is transcendent he is above all our Father who art in heaven. I mean, Jesus instructed us to recognize that's who the Father is when we speak to him. He's the transcendent God, but He's also the God who is near because he says in addition to being over all, he's through all and in all. And if above all points to the height of God, through all and in all points to the nearness of God. But in addition to looking at the words through, and in, we've also got to look at the fact that the word through and the word in is accompanied by the word all. So he's through all and in all. So if we wished at this moment, we could just, as it were, look round and see the people who we're with at present, and say to ourselves, the Father is at work in them through all and in all. At this moment, he who has begun a good work in each of them is working to bring it to completion. And that makes the Christian church amazing wherever they are, whatever name they're called by, throughout the world today, in each of them, the Heavenly Father is present. He's never far from any of his children. And there's a certain sense in which the more they recognize his transcendence, the more amazing becomes his nearness. our father. So that's reasons for unity. And we could all almost say one of them would be enough. But Paul wants to just say seven of them. Just to say this is, this. This is the organism that you belong to. It's not so much an organization An organization can be lifeless, but an organism has got life. And the church is living. It's alive. But then what's the resources that we're given? Well, Paul here says that um, in verse 7, every one of us has been given something if we're Christians. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We'll think about Christ's gift in a minute. But um, what Paul is saying there is that There's no Christian without something that he or she cannot use for maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And that means we've all got something to contribute. It also means that if we don't contribute, we're affecting the living out of the unity of the Spirit. And we we could ask ourselves, uh, where does um, this happen? Where do we live out this measure of grace that's given to us? And I think Paul gives the answer to that question. We had, I don't think we might pick it up immediately, but. I think he gives the answer to that question at the end of verse 10 where he says that this uh, expression of divine giving is worked out wherever Jesus is all, where Jesus fills all things. I read one person who said that Paul here is making a contrast between two emperors. The earthly emperor was the Roman emperor. And he thought he filled everything in the empire, the Roman empire. Because his name was everywhere. He filled all things in his empire. But we know that... He didn't really fill very much. But Jesus, when it comes to his empire, his church, he fills everywhere. It's where he rules. And in his amazing kindness, he gives to all those who are his willing subjects sufficient grace for them to function in his kingdom. Paul is saying to us, this has all been given for unity. So you and I, we have to function. And we may ask ourselves, how do we know what to do? And the answer to that question is, we become it just by doing Christian disciplines, like praying and reading the Bible and so on. We become what we should be. We use the grace that is given to us. And some of us are good at this, and some are good at that, and so on. And together, we function. But Paul points out here that... um, Jesus has given particular gifts as a result of his ascension and these gifts are listed there in verses 11 and following apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And these gifts are given to everyone. They're not not given to us in the sense that we um, have apostles or are prophets in this, this particular sense today or evangelists in the sense that they're used here. We use these words today but with different meanings from what they had back then. But all these ones that are listed here are what are called word gifts. They speak. They speak on behalf of Jesus as it were. And today we have Those who are called pastors and teachers. And why do we have them? What's the point of having these individuals with word gifts? And Paul tells us what the point of them is in verse 12. Why, to put it into contemporary language, why do ministers pastors, and teachers exist. Why do they function? What is their role? And Paul says what their role is there in verse uh, 12. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus, in his plan, in order to enhance the unity of his body, gives to certain individuals this particular role that they will equip the saints for the work of ministry there in verse 12. The work of ministry there is not the ministry as we call it, it's works of service. So they'll know what to do, just basically by explaining the Word of God, and they build up the body of Christ by giving to them what is good for their spiritual development, because that's what the word building up means. So they do that, and that's what they're going to be doing, says Paul. In verse 13, they're just going to be doing that until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. They're just going to keep doing that until Jesus returns. There's no other method, it's the method that Christ uses. And Paul is just saying to us that's the resources you have. There's nothing special about these individuals. I mean, Peter, he was an apostle, he was just a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector, and so on. Paul, well, he had obviously certain gifts, but these gifts were not what made him an apostle. And there's nothing special about any of these particular gifts. It's just the role that they're called to and the role that they're called to is to enhance unity. And the unity is seen in the maturity of those that they explain things to. And that's that's it. And uh, It's quite, there's nothing um, staggering about that, is there? I mean, the church has been doing that for centuries. And in in the process of doing that, they're just doing what Paul says here. And it's a method that's going to be used right until Jesus comes back and we all get to the stage of perfect unity. So we could say that the role of Pastor, teachers, that Paul mentions there, is just to bring about unity. To help people maintain the unity that's already been arranged by Christ. And then very briefly, the last point. Having these resources, Paul says we have to realize the unity. And how do we do that? How do we do that in the year 2023? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 15. Unity is maintained by speaking the truth in love. Unity is maintained by every Christian speaking the truth in love. They know what to say because Jesus has revealed that to them in his word. And it's explained in different ways by those that he has gifted for that. And what they have to do with all that they have been given is speak to one another the truth in love. And that's how unity is maintained. What do we say? How do we say it? What we have to say is the truth. But it's not enough to say the truth. We have to speak the truth in love. And Paul points out that there's real dangers there, because he mentions in verse um, 14 that if we don't speak the truth in love, we'll be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's quite, I'll finish in a minute, but it's quite, I don't know what the word is, but it, it makes you stop and think that our words are either speaking the truth in love or they're not. Isn't it? It's quite staggering to think that. And if we're not speaking the truth in love, there is the possibility that we're being influenced either by human cunning or by devilish schemes and craftiness. So therefore, we have to watch what we say. The way to maintain unity After utilizing all the gifts that Christ has given, the way to maintain unity is by what we say and how we say it, speaking the truth in love at all times. And if we do that, I mean, Paul says the body will grow. And as every member, makes his his or her contribution the body just keeps on building up there's no limit to the growth it can have and Paul says to us this is the unity you have to realize and I suppose the question just comes to us comes to me comes to you What did we say today that comes under this description of speaking the truth in love? And I think that's a very challenging question because it's all to do with Christian growth, the growth of the body. God works through his people. And he works through them by what they say, and they are to speak the truth in love. So the church, the church is a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to get into the church when we believe in Jesus, repent of our sins, and everyone's welcome to join, and we come into the church. But that's only the start of a wonderful exploration. To discover this incredible organism, this unity that Christ has put together. Something that's so united, it's going to last forever. And in this life, our responsibility is to speak the truth in love it's obviously to do other things for one another, but the one that's highlighted here is speaking the truth in love. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks.